This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Thank you. Good afternoon and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Becky Fincham, and it's great, isn't it? I start getting my name wrong. This is going to go so well. <laughs> my name's Becky Fincham, and alongside Luke Wright, I programme and produce Babylon, which is a strand of this glorious festival which celebrates the magic of poetry and spoken word in performance. And Babylon returns to the festival this year for its fifth year! And since its inception, Babylon has worked to build a bridge between the kind of frenetic, lagered-up energy of the fringe and the more reserved, chilled, let's say, gin and tonic with an ice and slice uh, atmosphere of the book festival. It's been an incredible event weekend of Babylon events already, and I'm slightly overwhelmed to be introducing what is set to be one of the most captivating hours of performance yet, with the one and only Inuit Elums. Just after the event, um, Inua's going to be over in the bookshop signing copies of his book, so I'll be happy to chat to you and answer any questions then if you have them. Inua Ellums is an award-winning, internationally touring poet, playwright, performer, graphic artist and designer, though that seems is not all. At present, he's also Tower of London's poet-in-residence, ambassador for the Ministry of Stories, a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, and founder of mobile community Midnight Run, whose popularity is spread across the world. He's also the founder of Rap Party, with the Rhythm and Poetry Party, an incredible regular event which brings together poetry, poets and hip-hop. And um, I, I just said to you in the tent, it's like one of those things when you see people curate events and they put together amazing events and have really good ideas, and you see it and you go, oh, so jealous, like, it's so good. Um, so I'm really looking forward to going to that soon. In his first play, The Fourteenth Tale was awarded a, first, a Fringe First Award at the Edinburgh International Theatre Festival, and his fourth, Barbershop Chronicles, sold out its run at the National Theatre last year. His recent show, An Evening with an Immigrant, toured widely to huge acclaim and, and was on the Fringe last year. As well as being widely anthologised and regularly published across literary press, Inua has published four books of poetry, including his most recent collection, the Ted Hughes Award shortlisted After Hours, which he'll be drawing on today. After Hours is an astonishing book, published by Nine Arches Press last year, and it was written whilst Inua was poet-in-residence at the National Poetry Library at the South Bank Centre in 2015. This book is a void of cultural translation and transposition through time and place to the heart of the library's archive through his own life story as he selects and responds to poems published during each of the first 18 years of his life. At once an anthology, a diary, a memoir and a collection of poetry, After Hours transcends the borders of genre as Ellums remains alongside us throughout, at once a reader, a listener, a storyteller and a poet. Through this book, he generously lifts the lid on the creative process, showing us the sparks that fly beneath its cloak, whilst exploring the three core themes that can be found throughout his work, identity, displacement and destiny. Dear audience, it's going to be an incredible hour. Please put your hands together and welcome to the stage, Inua Ellums. Thank you. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. Good. Um, 
So I haven't decided what to read. I'm going to get you guys to decide that by shouting a page number. And I'll read the poem on that page and what comes before and what comes after. Um, so um, I'm not quite sure if this is going to work. Well, I'm vaguely confident it'll work because <laughs> it happened in Ireland. And not to say that Ireland is the same as um, cold um, Scotland. Well, um, sort of cultural similarities there. Um, but um, we're just going to see um, how it goes. Thank you for coming, coming tonight, um, to this afternoon, evening. Um, <laughs> evening. <laughs> evening, sorry. Um, I woke up at um, 7 o'clock um, on Saturday morning because I had a driving lesson at 8 o'clock. I'm currently learning how to drive. Um, and then I went to play basketball between 11 and 12, go home to clean my flat, um, finish um, a book proposal, uh, no, a film proposal, then um, drove to the airport. No, I didn't drive because that would be legal. Um, <laughs> I got, I got um, transport to the airport, and, and then my plane was delayed, leaving by an hour and a half. So I got to Scotland at about 11 a.m. yesterday, stayed up speaking with my host till about 1 a.m., fell asleep, then woke up by, I was woken up by um, a three-year-old at at seven o'clock, who was just jumping on my head. Um, so I'm sort of like sleep deprived, um, but it's, it's good to be in Scotland. <laughs> so, um, okay, all right. So I'm going to begin by reading the introduction into the book. I'm reading the first poem, which contextualizes all of this, and then um, we'll see what happens. Okay, so this is it. <clears throat> in 2014, I turned 30 and wished to mark it with a project about the end of childhood. I spoke with Chris McCabe, the librarian at the National Poetry Library, and explained the idea to construct my youth by writing response poems to the work of British and Irish poets. I would find poems published between 1984 and 2002 from when I was born to when I turned 18. But I would reset the poems. For instance, a poem on climbing a hill in southern England um, to watch um, Roman sheep could be reset to climbing a hill in northern Nigeria to watch wild antelope. Um, and um, I hope the project would show the ways in which poetry transcends time, borders, history, culture, race, and empire to illustrate cultural differences and similarities. The tradition of writing response poems is as old as poetry. One could argue that all poems are sort of response poems anyway, and um, the difference is how closely I wanted to write the responses. I didn't want just to like take a line, a verse, or structure, or an opposing stance, but instead I wanted to respond to as much of the original poem as possible whilst writing my childhood. For, for this reason, I had no intentions whatsoever of publishing my poems without the originals alongside. I wanted to narratively, culturally, historically translate and transpose those poems. Um, the richest readings of my versions is summoned when it is paired with the predecessors. And because of that, every time I read my poem, I'm going to read the original poem today. So you're going to hear the voices that came before, before my attempts at rewrites. Um, in a sense, then... Um, all the poems I've written are odes to those poets, and I'd like to thank them for giving me um, the space to do so. And um, I'm going to read the very first one. Um, so, this is... Have you guys heard... Okay, no, I'll come to that later. Um, yeah. Um, no, I think I'll read the original first, then read the diary entry, then read my version. That's, that's the right way to do this. So, there's a poet called Ian Crichton Smith. Does anyone know him, Ian? Fantastic, fantastic writer. And he wrote a book called The Exiles, which was published in 1984 when I was born. And um, the book was, the poem was written to a friend. 
And Ian was saying, you know that place we went to, don't go back there because it's changed drastically. And that is the meat, the sort of narrative um, impetus for the poem. And, and this, is, this is a poem called No Return, which I loved. No, really, you can't go back to that island anymore. The people are growing more and more unlike you, and the fairy stories have gone down to the grave in peace. The wells are dry now, and the long grasses parched by their mouths, and the horned cows have gone to another country where someone else's imagination is fed daily on milk. There were, you remember, sunsets against which the black crows were seen, and a moonlight of astonishing beauty calmed at midnight by waters which you are not able to hear. The old storytelling people have gone home to their last houses under the acres of a lost music. These have all been sold now to suave strangers with soft voices. It is a great pity that our cottage, preserved in January by clear ice and in June surrounded by daisies, have been sold to some strangers and the bent witches evicted. If you were to return now, the roofs would appear lower, the walls would have no echoes, the wave-like motion would be lost, the attics where you read all day would be crammed with antiques. No, you cannot return to an island expecting the dances will be unchanged, that the currency won't have altered, that the mountains blue in the evening will always remain so. You can't dip your mouth in a pure spring ever again or ever be haunted by the eternal sound of the ocean. Even the boats which you once rode have set off elsewhere. The witches, wizards, harlequins, jesters have packed up their furniture and guitars. The witches have gone home to their broomsticks and the conjurers with their small horses and tiny carts have departed, leaving the island bare. Bleak and windy, itself alone in its barren corner, composed of real rocks and real flowers, indifferent to the rumors and the stories, stony and persistent. Hmm. Um, yeah, that was by Ian. So I read that poem and loved it. I thought, this is fantastic. And, and first, the second question I asked myself is, what the hell was happening in Nigeria in 1984? And how might this poem exist in that context? So... Um, I began to interview my parents because in 1984, I didn't know that I was born, literally, um, and, and they did. Well, I like to think they did. Um, and um, this is the diary entry I wrote in beginning to approach the poem. Two weeks before I was born, my parents had no idea I had a twin sister, or rather that my twin sister had a twin brother, that two tiny hearts were beaten within my mother. I've joked about this a lot, about being born and instantly causing chaos, that my parents had to prepare for a whole other mouth to feed and life to nurture and raise. What the incident points to is how questionable birthing facilities were in northern Nigeria at the time. Linked to that, it points to infant mortality rates across the country. Back then, children died of malnutrition, asphyxia, severe infection, and a host of other ailments. Some deaths were so mysterious and unexplained. Some families were struck so often that they felt cursed by a spirit who would be born to them as a child. They would care for the baby, it would die, and in doing so, inflict pain and heartache, only to be born, to reborn, and the cycle begin anew. Perhaps they were indeed cursed. Who is to know? These spirit children with deep ties to the land before life, who always died before puberty, were called abiku or ogbanje children. 
in two of Nigerians um, three main languages Abiku is the Yoruba term and Ogbanje is the Igbo term the Igbo's term literary translation is children who come and go no equivalent exists for spirit children in Hausa, which is my father's language, or used to call my mother's. However, I wonder if my parents feared at all that my twin sister or I might have been spirit children. Um, and um, because of that, I wrote this poem. So um, this poem, okay, actually, no, I'll read. I was sort of like deciding which paragraph to read, but I'll, I'll, I'll go this. And close the reading of Craig. Um, Actually, no, I'll go from here. The poem, um, Ian's poem, warns the reader of the perils of revisiting a place, advising that not much would have changed, that much would have changed, that the island would be unrecognizable, and the visit ultimately disappointing. On second reading, I note the hint of, ex of exoticism in the description of the island, full of horned cows, moonlight of astonishing beauty, midnight waters, old storytelling people, acres of a lost music, mountains blue in the evening, um, witches, wizards, harlequins, and jesters. All of this is, is in stark contrast to the end, where the island becomes bare, bleak and windy. The end brings to mind the Welsh word hiraeth, which is um, a homesickness for a home to which you cannot return, a home which maybe never was. The nostalgia, the yearning, the grief for the lost places of your past. I love that word. Hiraeth. Oh my God, I'm going to name a child that. Um, I wondered if I could research, rewrite, translate, and transpose no return as a message from my parents to me or my twin sister, fearing us as Abiku or Banji children, urging us to stay, trying to placate our Hiraeth of the spirit world by listening to its parallels with the real Nigeria. I'll try to use the last words of each of Ian's lines as the last words of mine, an element of each verse, description, fixation, detail, etc. Um... If the Abuku or Ogbanje children sounds familiar, then perhaps you've read The Famished Road by Ben Okri. Who has read that? Who, yeah? Fantastic, fantastic book. And it's an epic um, novel awarded the Booker Prize in 1991. And its protagonist is a kid called Azaro. And Ben's um, incre incredibly vivid, haunting, melancholic description of the spirit world and its inhabitants won fans right over the world. And um, it's often described as magical realism. To many Nigerians, Ben simply wrote about ordinary, everyday life. Um, I search through the internet and find essays on the famished road. I dig out my old dog-eared copy and skim read, sparkling at Ben's brilliance. I note loose descriptions to inspire my poem and include this line, there is wonder here and there is surprise in everything that you cannot see. So this is my, this is my version called No Return after Ian Crichton Smith. No. You really cannot go back to that other world, to that island. We've been waiting months. The spirit folk you left behind grow more and more unlike you, cause pains in your chest. Think of them as fairy tales. This will ease your breath. This will bring you peace. The ceaseless seas are dry now, and the long grass is parched. The white trees are leafless, the horned cows hung, the storm birds have gone to another country. Let this overrun your memories and dull imagination. Let earth tether you. Focus on your mother's milk. 
what you can remember of the chlorocos sunsets, forests where the blue antelope kings were last seen, the jade green moonlight's astonishing ultra beauty, the bickering mountains calmed by midnight waters, that world that calls to you, you'll find mirrored here. The griots, the wise ones, the old storytelling people, the aunties and uncles have returned to their houses, and what fills their space, that ache you hear, is music. That is Sunny Ade's voice. That is a talking drum. Those are called harmonies, the joy of synced voices. Sorry for that sudden silence. That is a power outage. Um, sorry for how soup thick the dark is. It is a small price we pay for constant warmth. The sun sings us praises. Our skin knows its light. Once it welcomed strangers who colonized our lives. We fought, had them evicted. If you flew a thousand feet above Earth's roofs, you will trace narratives like these, lines and echoes, multitudes and magnitudes of struggles, loved ones lost, kinsmen crucified, cultures crushed in the light of day. These stories decorate your bloodline like antiques. No, you can't return to those other shores. That land won't recognize your tongue. Its dance has changed. Your throat knows soil now. Your tones have altered. Your soft palate is battered by articling evenings, and the spirit folks don't get jokes will always remain so. We have dipped you in the warmest Yankari spring. You have heard the call to prayer. You'll ever be haunted. You've sipped of guava fruit. You've dribbled an ocean. Think of the distance crossed. All those rivers rode. The drifts of mist you parted, searching for elsewhere. We can feel them watching you. The contortionists and jesters, the masquerades, the egungus, the other spirit, spirit brethren, the guitar-mouthed specters, teeth of silver strings, broomsticks for eyes, glowing coal for noses, hooves of wild horses. We will stand night watch until they have all departed. Our world is complex, bare, fruitful, still as it is windy. There are unseen wonders in our most barren corners, from the clenched fist of rocks to open palms of flowers. Take with them, make here home, weave new stories, remake our myth, stay with us. We will be persistent. Thank you. Cool. Cool. Thank you. Okay. So um, now it's over to you guys. Um, pick a number, pick a page between page 32 and uh, let me see, 133. And then I'll read a poem, I'll read um, my version. After. 79. Okay, so 79. Um, okay, so this is a poem called um, The King and Queen of Dumfriesshire. I haven't quite learned how to pronounce that word. Um, but I'll explain what happened and, what, and, and why I did what I did. Um, okay, good. So um, the original was written by a poet called um, Bill Herbert, who's fantastic, fantastic, fantastic poet. And he, lect he used to tutor me poetry um, for over the course of a year. And um, his poem is about um, a sort of statue somewhere um, in Dumfriesshire, um, which, which he just loved and wrote a poem about. And, um, and in 1994, I think, uh, was my second or third day in boarding school. And um, it, was, it was horrible um, because there was a fight. Um, 
actually, I'm going to read you his version and then explain the context and read mine. But I, but I love this poem. It's, it's so quaint. It's so Bill. If you know Bill as a poet, it's just so, so Bill. Um, this is gorgeous. Okay, so it's about a statue. The king and queen of Dumfrieshire sit in their battery-dead triumph, gazing ahead at an iced-over windscreen like a gull rolled flat. They are cast in bronze with Henry Moore holes shot in each other by incessant argument. <laughs> These are convenience for holding our tartan flask, his rolled-up Scotsman. The hairy skeleton of a border terrier sits in the back window, not nodding. On the back seat rests their favorite argument, the one about how he does not permit her to see the old friend she no longer likes and he secretly misses, the one which is really about punishing each other for no longer wanting to make love. The argument is in the form of a big white bowl with a black band around it, hand-painted with fruit. It has a gold rim, and in it lies a brown curl of water from the leaking roof. Outside, the clouds continue to bomb the glen with sheep, which bear their slate teeth as they tumble, unexpectedly sneering. The king and queen of Dumfrieshire sit like the two solid bullet-ridden ghosts of Bunny and Clyde, not eating their tin salmon sandwiches, crossless, still wrapped in tin foil, still in the Tupperware. They survey their domain, not glancing at each other, not removing from the glove compartment any of the old words that they've always used to keep their only threat at bay of separation. So I love that. I just love the depiction of sort of like marital angst. You know, these people, they, they sort of like hate each other, but love each other too, too much to let the hate go. Like that's how I see, how I see the poem. And in 1994, I just thought about the statuesque nature of that poem and what was happening. So in um, 1994, my twin sister and I went to boarding school in Nigeria um, called Federal Government College, Odogbolu, um, which is called FEGO um, for short. And um, there was a fight, a huge battle between um, um, an older boy and an older girl in the, in the top forums. And um, she picked up a flask and broke it across his face. And there was a riot. It was mayhem. Tables were upturned. There were things flying, missiles. And this was the first time I was away from home with my twin sister in boarding school. So I was completely terrified. I thought she'd die or something, just missiles flying over. And, um, and this is a poem about um, just learning that I really love my twin sister. Before then, she was sort of like my rival. Um, we were born and suddenly she was occupied my space. We shared the same room and she had the top bunk, you know. And, um, and this was just about realizing how I was still emotionally tied to her. Um, and this is it. And my version is called The King and Queen of Odogbolu. And I did that same thing again. What, oh yeah, this is one of the most difficult poems in the book because um, I took the first words and the last words of his, of his lines and used them as the first and last words of all the lines in my poem. So I felt like I was, I was in Bill's skin whilst trying to write about myself. Um, okay, this is it. The head boy and girl, king and queen of Odogbolu, sit in the vast dim-lit boarding school hall, gazing ahead at us, the journey just comes, numb from the shock. So flat, they're all concave, they laugh and point, firing holes shot through our shredded confidence. When arguments, these will become the norm, erupts to a riot. A flask hisses overhead, ruptures against the wall, and I'm a skeleton of rigid fear, scanning for my sister. There's a window, 
and not running like other first years, her shoulders rest their blades against its pain, and I hurl a prayer about how wings come to those who wait past new friends. She doesn't hear it. The hallowed lift of my voice misses the mark of her among the stampede, falls to another fortunate to be hoisted out, and I wonder if this is love. The argument spills crude oil-like, an upturned bowl with dark thickenings, small fissures burst like sick fruit, its rising violent wave to peak, to collapse where she lies, a thin brown defiant thing, her eyes raised to the roof. Outside, the night skies reflect what I'm feeling, continue to shift and part for blossoming old memories to bear their emotional truths. Love? Was it when she tumbled unexpectedly off her bicycle, the other kid sneering? The head boy and girl, king and queen of Odogolu, sit like weakening spirits, the stampede slowing to ghosts of off-color, thrones over a blurring world. Love, the tin crown influence failing, is this love, I'm asking, still wrapped in its scope, and the king and queen are unaware. They survey their domain, but cannot glance beneath at each first tier's heart, at how vast its compartment, at the many ways in which we rise against them, how love is used to form new worlds, even tonight, our first of separation. Thanks. Cool. Thank you. My twin sister, I don't think she knows I wrote this poem. Um, and I haven't, she's, I'm the sentimental one. Like, I'll tell you a story. So um, when we the first time went to primary school in Nigeria, um, I remember there was an assembly and they were divvying up the kids and sending us to various classrooms. And when I discovered that we were being separated, like she was going to, and I, her class was literally beside mine. I could see her through the window. But I threw a huge tantrum in the assembly, like, you know, you know, banging on the floor and everything. And I expected her to, like, throw an equivalent tantrum or something, you know. And she just turned around, kissed her teeth, and walked off. <laughs> you know, and we're like five. I don't know how she got that much attitude. Anyway, so even here, boarding school, I was still the... Anyway, anyway, that's, that's my twin sister. Um, okay, so another page. That was page 79. Any other one? 32. A hundred and thirty-two. Um, okay, okay. Uh, that's the penultimate page. I see what you did there. <laughs> okay. Great. So um, I'm really pleased um, that you chose this one because there's a sort of there's a backstory to everything, uh, but this has a particular one. Um, of, okay, the two blocks of backstories. One of them I just I just discovered here. So when I was writing this project, um, I had no clue. I didn't think anyone would give me the right or the you know the rights to publish this because there are 19 incredible poets from Andrew Motion to Carol and Duffy and everyone in between. And I thought those guys are gonna like you know like the idea that there's this Nigerian kid who's deconstructing the poems and writing his own version. So um, a few years ago, I was at Guadalajara for the um, for the for literature festival of the British Council, and um, um, and Andrew Motion was there. And we'd sat on a few panels before, and we sort of vaguely realized that we agreed about various things to do with poetry. So I, we were like walking out of the venue, and I hesitantly said, oh, hi, Andrew. <laughs> hi, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Um, so my name is Inouar, and, um, and I'm writing this book, and I've sort of started like rewriting one of your poems. I hope that's okay. 
Then I looked at him like, you know, aghast, thinking he'd like, you know, open his mouth and pure molten lava will, you know, would strike me. But instead he just smiled and said, I like the sound of the project, do whatever you want with the book. And um, when I popped in today, I met Nick who runs this event and he was there in Guadalajara. So it's funny that I'm here and it's just really nice. Um, but um, this is the diary entry. I'm going to read um, Andrew's poem, then read that. Um, and I love this poem because I'm, I'm not really religious, um, but I really look for signs and wonders and things that point to suggestions that I'm supposed to be doing the right thing. And this last poem is full of it. Um, but um, this is Andrew's poem. It's called um, The Aftermath. It is in part three of a long um, book and, um, from a story he, he wrote called Long Story. So a book he wrote called The Long Story. And um, this is about him going walk about, um, um, yeah, when he was a kid. So this is, this is Andrew's poem. I am a child again, going walk about by day for the first time, packing everything I can imagine to take with me. One cheese sandwich, one tomato, one Cox apple, one pack of cards, and one torch. It's not much, but it's enough. I shall never come back. I shall drink from a stream. <laughs> Sorry. I just love like little kids who run away from home. And then, you know, two hours later, they come back for their stuffed toy or something like that. That's totally what Andrew did. Okay, I'll, I'll start it again. <laughs> I'm a child again. Go and walk about by day for the first time, packing everything I can imagine to take with me. One cheese sandwich, one tomato, one cox apple, one pack of cards, and one torch. It's not much, but it's enough. I shall never come back. I shall drink from a stream. <laughs> it's just so stupid. I love it. Um, in fact, I am thirsty already. <laughs> And only halfway over the village green where the butcher sees me. Mr. Wilkinson lifting one red arm in his doorway. I can make out his blue striped apron and imagine the sawdust with its pattern of coming and going. He doesn't know I am off. He thinks I'm carrying in a bag with fruit and bread for Mrs. Reynolds, whose husband died. Sunlight bores from the hard center of the sky and the butcher melts under his awning. He's the last thing I see before the main road, which, is, which in those days was not main, and soon dropped behind me with a meager lorry rumble and a quick car fizz, when what I'd, been, what I'd hoped for was the stupendously huge thunderous passing of a combine, the tarmac wrinkled by sheer weight, and a queue of drivers behind me wanting to feel angry, but in truth, children like me, entertained and patient. It was that time of year, the aftermath, and when I'd scraped over a barred gate on the far side of the road, a field they had already cut was lying entirely open. I'd never been there before, and I'd never felt such emptiness under a wide haven, with hedges grubbed out and close-cropped stubble swelling and sinking for such a blinding distance, and sky lifted, yet at the same time crushing onto me. With all this, my head was traveling at ground level, hunting for a sense of balance. Did I keep moving forward? I did, at a snail's pace, hauling myself up the speckled crest of a dock leaf, then roller-coasting into a rubble of dry earth crumbs, ant eggs, and wheat husks. Everything was fascinating but an obstacle, and I had to examine the least detail, a straw stem, a flint scale, a warm cast like wet ribbon. How did I miss the spinny, moored there in midfield? By keeping my head down, as I say, by not looking at the larger things of what was happening, 
But these were real and solid trees which squeezed round me, satin-skinned beeches, disgruntled oaks, and a birch with leaves like grease spots. Everything was as it should be, yet the dated wings um, went so quiet on the foot, yet the dead twigs went so quiet on the foot that I might have been on air. And it was cold, too, though the sun still danced around the spinney on all sides, sticking its thin pins and knife blades, trying to get at me and failing. I found a fallen tree near the center, a young ash with its leaf hair mushed and threadbare, its root ball like a stubbed-out cigarette, and straightway sat down, dizzy, in a fog of mushroom rot. A collar dove landed in a flurry, then came back under control with a display of wing origami. A bright orange spider absailed from the root stub. The sun blades kept up their daredevil dancing, but missed me by so much I might not have existed. I had never planned it, but I felt myself dissolving, my heart slowing to nothing, my brain running out, all of me adrift in a moat dance of dust and spores, and happy until the sunlight sheathed its blades, the spinny cooled and blackened, and the dollar silence told me I was hungry and expected home. The thing I could not see, stumbling through those trees, across the ditch, and then stubble spread, was how it would still be going on years later, still going on now in the long aftermath since I've tried to reach there again, setting off in secret across the hot village green with the butcher lifting his red arm, the plastic bag cumbersome and sticky in my hand, the traffic quiet, and the enormous field opening before me in which there was never a single tree, much less a spinny, but the whole expanse just clear and flat forever. I just love that. Oh, it's such a good poem. Anyway, so I read that and, um, and it reminded me about a project that I started doing years before called The Midnight Run. And um, this poem sort of, sorry, this um, diary entry sort of details that. Today, I began writing the 19th and final poem for the After Hours project. Years ago, during a mini nervous breakdown, the writer and musician Musa Kwonga sat down with me and in one of those devastating, rewarding conversations I'd ever had, told me that everything I write comes down to three words, identity, displacement, and destiny. That they were the square roots, the common denominators, the grounds on which my everything stands. That night, I looked at all I'd written and found that Musa could not have been more accurate. Identity is there. In my Irish, English, Nigerian hood, it is the Rubik's Cube I keep unpacking, the gift that keeps giving. Displacement is very much entwined with this, finding myself in new countries led to attempts to fit in, which led to issues of identity. Displacement and the effect of moving, of being moved, of attempting to stay still, still taints all aspects of my life. Destiny, however, is the most elusive, the Holy Spirit of the Trinity of Musa's theory, and it is no wonder as it is largely about faith and belief. I was born to a Muslim father and a Christian mother, and whereas my sisters only ever went to the churches, I accompanied my father to the mosques, dressed exactly as a smaller version of him, thus from an early age, I had a plurality of religious belief. My father converted to Christianity and eventually I Eventually, I did, but those early memories stayed with me. When arriving in London, learning about other religions at school, I found that their commonalities settled in me, far outweighing their differences. 
What religion conjures in me now is a kind of spirituality, a kind of faith, a belief in the vague order to things, and that I will find that order if I, took, if I look for it. A path will always emerge. I'd say faith pilots every immigrant's journey, and blind faith at that. Hope is there, eternally, ubiquitously, but that F-word sharpens hope into a weapon. It gives hope form. Faith points hopes towards a destination, towards a promised and unpromised land through deserts, jungles, oceans. It is the vast and unquenchable, and it is vast, it is that vast and unquenchable. I think poetry is impossible without faith. When you begin writing and unsure about what is happening on the page, what powers the pen is faith that meaning will be made, that a vague reason and order will rise from the impulse to write. This faith, this is faith working towards the poem's destination, and every poem has its destiny. The reading of poetry also requires faith, and when we find a poem satisfactory, it is the vindication of our faith, proof that we were right all along to let the poem to enter us. Whenever I'm too focused on the destination of a poem or play and I begin to question the faith that is powering me, thinking myself too arrogant to my belief, I look for signs that I am on the right path. This after-hour project has been riddled with signs from the start, right from the get-go, too numerous to write about. Here, I'll just focus on signs surrounding this last poem. Sign 1. I began this project to mark the end of childhood, to mark turning 30. I turned 30 last Friday, and this first week of beginning 31, I'm in Nigeria for the first ever Lagos International Poetry Festival. There is a sort of secularity here, a sort of prodigal son returning home after he's become a man to finish off writing about his childhood type of, clari of clarity. I'm also researching, coincidentally, a play for the Royal Shakespeare Company, and the play is an attempt to write a prequel to Shakespeare's The Tempest, which is the kind of stupid thing that I do. I try to write a prequel to The Tempest. Anyway, um, from Caliban's point of view, echoing my first attempts at poetry, which were imitations of Shakespeare. Two. After moving to Dublin, I returned to London in 2002 and began poking around with poetry. At that time, Andrew Motion was the Poet Laureate, and his first book was under, the, under, the, under that laureateship was published in 2002. This project was framed as an attempt to add a voice to the colonized, to the shelves of the colonizers, by writing response poems to those in the British canon. In that light, it is fitting to end after hours in response to the Poet Laureate at the time. So that was the first sort of ridiculous thing that it was Poet Laureate when I was writing, and you know, all of that was just quite interesting. This book of Andrew's, Public Property, begins with a long poem, a long sequence. The third poem of that sequence is incredibly enough titled The Aftermath, and the book is called After Hours. Again, I did not see that coming when I started. Anyway, I keep on going. Can you see that? Patterns, links. Um, the poem is about a return to childhood, which is what the book is about, um, specifically about... <laughs> specifically about trying to return to the memory of a place, Welsh word, Hiraeth, or an actual place visited decades before, as I've been trying to do throughout the entire project, and contains the incredible poignant, perfect lines, the thing I could not see stumbling through those trees across the ditch, and then the stubble spread was how it would still be going on years later, still going on now, in the long aftermath since I've tried to reach there again. The thing I could not see when I started this project last October is how writing about childhood would govern the, pro the search for home. 
that Musa's theory of identity, displacement, and destiny began way before I was born in the lives of my grandparents and my parents, that it would still be going on years later and still going on now. Um, I'm going to jump around a little bit and, and just read my version. Because I hope you buy the book and then you can really see the patterns and the signs. Um, but this is my version about going for a walk in London at night. Um, yeah. I feel like an exiled child going walk about by night for the first time, packing everything I can imagine that I'll need. Spare socks, raincoat, assorted fruit, a map of central London, notebooks, pencils, and a torch. This is actually legitimate. Like, this is how I started doing it. It was, anyway. Um, it's not much, but it's enough to lose myself with exploring the hard labyrinth of the city. In fact, I'm already lost and only half an hour out the block of flats when the landlady sees me. Mrs. Adea, me, dragging a trolley of yams and plantains. I can just make out her faded and cara head wrap and imagine its pattern of fleeing falcons frozen as an I am mid flight. She doesn't know I'm off to find new space. She thinks my backpack is stacked with biographies, novels, and films from the library, which are long overdue. The soft blanket of dusk is falling across the sky, and the landlady is vanishing into its darkness. She's the last thing I see before the main road, which is excessively proven its name, deafening with the stupendously huge thunderous passing of fire trucks and sirens when all I'd be prepared for was the plodding procession of rush hour traffic, meager fishtailing cyclists clicking by, and trickles of headphone pedestrians wanting to be moved by another beat, but in truth, like me, tied to the cities. It was that time of year, the aftermath, and when I ducked under a barrier on the far side of the road, a monstrous building site was lying entirely desolate. I'd never been there before, and I'd never felt such vast enclosed emptiness. With greasy puddles and a solitary steel rod rammed into a square pool of cement pointing upward at the sky, which at the same time was filtering light onto me. With all of this, my head was traveling at ground level, hunting for a sense of balance. Did I keep moving forward? I did at a mouse's pace, tumbling through a speckled nest of cigarette stubs, then squeezed and passed a broken chail mail of crushed beer cans and a crown cap. Everything was an obstacle, but fascinating, and I had to list down the least detail, a belt buckle, a razor, a razor, a used condom like a flattened slug. How did I miss the old multi-story car park mid-center? By keeping my head down, as I say, by not looking at the larger things or what was happening. But there were real and solid signposts which announced bursting dustbins, proud bollards, parking spaces, their grey lines like tired arms open to embrace cars. Everything was as it should be. Yet, the newspapers crunched so quiet underfoot I might have been on air. And it was warm, too, though the moon still danced around the car park on all sides, throwing in broad beams and sword blades of light at me, hitting home each time. I found neon signage, too, near the center, a poor thing with its wires burnt and hanging out, its black paint like a shedding second skin, and straightway sat down dizzy in a fog of asbestos dust. Two pigeons took off in a flurry, then came back with a synchronized display of ballroom quickstep. A Rorschach test of a moth fluttered from the shadows. The moon blades kept up their ninja-like lantern and struck me so often I might have bled to death. 
I'd never planned it, but I felt myself solidifying, my heart racing to fullness, my brain expanding out, all of me alive in a moat dance of dust and soot, and happy until the moonlight sheathed its blades, the car park warmed and brightened, and the sharper noises made a rhythm that merged with my own beat. The thing I could not see, stumbling past street lights across traffic islands and then the main road was how it'd still be going on for years to come, still going on now. In long aftermath since, I've tried to reach there again, setting off in secrets across the cold urban courtyard with a landlady lifting a head wrap, the backpack packed well and sturdy in my hands, the traffic noisy on the vast building site opening before me, in which I don't find a single street lamp, much less a car park, but the whole enclosure empty and flat forever. Thank you. Cool. Awesome. Okay. So, how you doing? You good? Yeah? Okay, another page, another page number. 52. Okay, 52, 52. Oh, right. Okay, good. I get to read one of my favorite poems in this book. I really like reading, writing this. Um, so, um, my little sister was born in um, 1989. And, um, I, okay, uh, it's not that I didn't like her. But, <laughs> like, it's not, it's not like, so, I, I was the only male child in my family at the time she was born. And because of that, I had like, I was fully in the elixir of male privilege. I didn't know that's what it was at the time, but because I was the only boy, my parents just bestowed and showered me with everything that I wanted. Um, so, 1989, when I was five years old, this other thing comes into the family, this little gremlin. And suddenly she became like, like the, the high point, like the, the moment of like emotional catharsis in the family. And I, I just didn't read. I was really jealous. And, and, and I carried this jealousy for almost a, like 10 years until we were in Dublin. I remember, I'll never forget it. Um, she'd come back from school. And I, I think, I don't know, she was in the kitchen. She was hungry or something. And she asked for something. And I gave a really venomous, sharp response to her. And Hadiza just, just started crying. I said, why don't you like me? And... I realized then that I've been carrying this resentment for, for such a long... Like, my heart just broke that I started crying. And I began, like, really searching myself, thinking, why don't I like her? Like, she's cool. Like, she's, you know, and then everything changed. And of all my sisters, she's the one most like me now. We get on, like, a house on fire. Um, but um, I just remember, I haven't written a poem about that, actually. Maybe maybe I should. Um, but um, 1989 was when she was born. And um, this is when this gorgeous poem by Charles Boyle was written. And... Um, and I'm going to read his version, then read what I wrote in response. So this is his. This is a really mundane poem. It's about just working in an office and seeing weird things happen across the window. Um, sorry, through the window. And, but this is what he wrote, and I love this poem. It's called Writ in Water. Across from our office was another like ours, but whose whole facade was made of glass. No pain was exactly true, and on clear mornings, our late arrivals, hangovers, feet on desks, and industrious moments were reflected there as if in water. Later, when they switched on their lights, the glass gave way like the front of an old doll's house. There were the serious men in suits, and the secretaries at their keyboards, and the man who clears memos from the outtrays to distribute to intrays. And the vent, a vent at the top uttered steam, 
And one day, in early spring, a brimming froth of suds which the lightest breeze creamed off. I just like that image of like suds and just breeze, just blah, just, just a little thing. I, I love this poem. So um, I read it and I began thinking what happened in 1989. I remember my little sister was born and this was the poem that I wrote. Um, so um, I used the same line endings that he did for mine, but um, I made it a specular poem so you can read it forward and backwards and it still makes sense. Um, and I got to read this for the first time to Hadiza on her birthday at a poetry event that I was curating and she, I think she forgave me for all those years of hatred. Um, so um, my version is called Writ in Water and Blood, 1989. We'd find her across from our bedroom, another like us, but Hadiza's young skin was a translucent facade like tracing paper or frosted glass. No pain was light enough to pinch with, to consider, to contemplate. Instantly she'd begin howling around our feet, staring up at us, replaying the small-fisted moments of our wickedness, her face streaked with water. Later, one mom would switch off the room lights to nurse her in the dark. The howls would fall away like young skin. Silence would re-enter the house. Dad would change from the man always in suits to a human plaything, a cave of flesh, a surfboard bound by blood, net of fingers, arm forming trace to float her towards the bathtub's warm sprays. Once, breeze blew through a gap in the door and cleared the steam, so we'd recall the froth of suds, what it felt like to be vulnerable and taken care of. What it felt like to be vulnerable and taken care of cleared the steam so it recalled the froth of suds. Once breeze blew through a gap in the door and to float her towards the bathtub's warm sprays, bound by blood, net of fingers, arm forming trays, a human plaything, a cave of flesh, a surfboard, dad, would change from a serious man in suits to young skin. Silence would re-enter the house to nurse her. In the dark, the house would fall away. Later, one mom would switch, on the roof, switch off the roof lights of our wickedness, her face streaked with water, staring up at us, replaying the small-fisted moments. Instantly, she began howling. Around our feet, light, enough to pinch with, to contemplate, like tracing paper or frosted glass. No pain was light was like us, but Adiza's young skin was a translucent facade. We'd find her across from our bedroom, another. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, good. How much time do we have? Ten minutes. Ah, okay, right. Okay, I thought we were going to. Okay, good. Ten minutes. Um, so another page. The Sarah Maguire one. The Sarah one. Oh, so you've read this book? Oh, clever. Okay, the Sarah Maguire one. Um, okay, which page is that? Okay, still at sea. Okay, right. Okay, that's page sixty-three. Okay, um, I also really loved, this poem was so gentle and so delicate, and um, okay. Okay, right, I'm gonna read Sarah's, then read the, di the diary entry, then read my version. This is a gorgeous poem, um, and it's written to a lover. The book was called um, Spilt Milk, and I think she was writing, I imagine her writing to a lover just about um, the difficulty in the relationship and watching someone struggle to something difficult. And, um, and this, is, this is her poem. 
Each night you return to the Mediterranean, just touching Marsala and will dream of the sea repeating itself. The light silvering all over your ceiling. Each night you woke with his hump, with his back humped against yours, his fists gripping the pillows as he dreamt of his cargoes packed in dry docks or of the Caspian Sea locked into itself. Then, after half a life, you left this house full of maps and dust, and you found your paints in thirteen shades of cobalt and jade. In Cephalu, your dream became your home, a house in the harbor where the sea slapped at your walls. Standing in the kitchen up to your elbows in underwear and soap, you would look out to find the waves organizing the pebbles, scouring the rocks. At night, alone with the moonlight and the smallest grappa, you pictured yourself as a cubist sacrifice, sectioned in monochrome, your lap full of triangles, the moon shifting our perspectives to whiten your ankles, throw your mouth into doubt. You occupied that house nine months, watching the seasons, then the tourists come and go. Each morning, there was coffee and fresh focaccia by the sea, then the market for your aubergines and fennel, or that blue and silver banded fish. Once home, you take a knife and slit, op- slit, it's slit up the belly to reveal a sack of wasted eggs, the liver, then the tiny heart, its carmine blood releasing the grain of your scrubbed deal table and its memories of leaves. Three years silence, and I wonder if you're still at sea. I spread out all your letters on my desk to plot your travels. They're full of waters, watercolors, mostly harbors, reaching out to light. The very last tells how you found the cigarette machine outside your door by bullet hole, its fractured glass, like the sun a child might draw on the edge of a tablecloth. There was no blood to be seen, only the smell of washed stone and a woman with a bucket slipping out of view. So delicate, like just the portraiture and the description. Uh, I just, again, it really, really moved me when I read it. And um, what I chose to to write about was... um, um, my mother, really, and my mother trying to write about me as a kid. We visited Nigeria for the first, I'm sorry, the UK for the first time in 1991. And when I got home, um, I, was, I, was, I was homesick for London. I'd only spent maybe like two weeks or so here, but I felt like I belonged to London. It was 1991, so I was like, what, I don't know, six years, seven years old, but I felt like London was home. So when I got home, I, 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 just, I just wept for like two weeks straight. And my mother just couldn't understand what was happening. And um, so this is a point of view from my mother just writing about me, this kid. And, um, and this, is, this is my version. It's called Still at Sea, 1991. Each night you returned to the Mediterranean, just touching Marseille, and would dream of the sea, its rough surface tiled smooth by the workmen you draw at the kitchen table, each diligently clicking into place the baked earth. Against your father's wishes, I'd watch you gripping pillows as you dreamt of drowning, packed as you were between the sheets locked inside yourself. Then in the morning, you'd leave to school full of maps and tremors and find your classmates too risible, too confident in soil surety. In a Jawa estate, your dream engulfed our new home, a house by the airport where the sky's roar shook the windows. Standing by the kitchen sink in your soaked shirt up to your elbows in soap, you would look out to find the clouds hiding the plains, cloaking their descent. At night, 
Alone with the moonlight and a smallish sketch pad, you picture yourself a maverick architect reconstructing Atlantis, your lap full of rulers, the moon shifting a deposition to whiten your ankles, to throw a ghostly sheen over you. It occupied you for months, watching the skies shift, those aircrafts come and go. Each morning, there were grid lines erased from the sea you had painted, proof you distrusted your attempt at safe passage, as if in your dreams, walking among the waves and workmen, a plane lost its wings, crashed through your foundations, drowning the passengers. Bodies surfaced, faces frozen, mouths agape, eyes like soaked moons, teeth jeweling, dark skin dissolving to suffocate in darkness. Three years of silence before you found adequate words to tell. Years where I'd spread out your drawings on the floor to guess at your thoughts, scrubbing the scribbles off the walls for them to reappear days later, haunting us, scarring the surface, deep, violent, compulsive slashes, like how a child might score the edge of a table when no one was there to rebuke, only the smell of scrubbed towels and a mother with a bucket slipping out of view. Thank you. Done. Cool. Um, okay. I think we we have there's there's so many po ah um there's so many really really lovely poems here. Um, I rewrote. Have you heard? Have you read? Um, not the furniture game. Um, have you read that poem by Simon Armitage? Um, oh, it's really fantastic. And um, he gave me the permission to, to write my version. And once we did an event where I got to read both of them, and it was just really fantastic. So that's here. Um, there's a poem called Water One, which is about learning how to swim, which is really about my best friend trying to drown me when I was schooling in Holland Park. Um, and lots of little things here. And um, the most heartbreaking poem here, I think, is called My Father's Lungs, which is about my best friend in Dublin um, committing suicide and how that was sort of like the trigger for me to start writing. Um, I'm really proud of this book, and thanks for sharing the hour with me, and I'm more than willing to sign some um, next door, I think, around the corner. Yeah, cool. Um, yeah, my name is Zenor Adams. Um, I write poetry and theater, and, um, and yeah. That, 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 that's all. Sorry, that's an awkward ending. Anyway, thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.